Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And good evening and welcome to the Road to Recovery. You're here with Yona Bud. I'm in the studio with my friends Heather and Natasha. How you doing this evening? Hopefully everybody had a good week. Uh, you're listening to 640 Toronto and uh, we thank you for joining in. We're talking tonight a little bit about uh, stuff that matters. I want to start off with a conversation about bullying, cyberbullying. Had a mother who called me. Uh, a week or two ago, told me a story about her daughter, uh, or took some picture, and then since you know how this goes, right? You hold a man and Todd thing from a, a while back there, right? Sent the picture, next thing the picture was supposed to go to a friend and ended up, you know, being out on the internet, on the web, so to speak, everywhere for everybody to see, ruined her life, she took her life and killed herself. This girl was in the same boat, sent a picture to one of her girlfriends, actually, showing one of her girlfriends what she looked like in a particular bathing suit, but didn't put the top on, just showed her the bottoms. And it was supposed to be between two girls, two buddies, two close friends, as I understand, from uh, kindergarten. And the long and the short of it is, as you can well imagine, that picture ended up in places it shouldn't. And the daughter was suicidal, uh, didn't want to go to school, didn't want to eat, didn't want to talk to anybody, just stay in her room. And she wasn't sure what to do. And uh, we began having conversations, the girl and I, the young person and I, and we continue to have conversations to this day. And it'll probably be months and months and months of conversations to help this young person feel better. Cyberbullying, it's a thing. These pictures, young people need to understand when you take a picture and send it out on the internet, lots of people are going to see it. It's, it's a fallacy to believe that it's just going to stay with my friend, I promise. It's just going to be with my buddy. Honestly, I had no idea. I didn't think this was a big deal. Just send it off to a friend. If she was sleeping over, I would have just stood here and showed it to her, she said to me. I said, yes, but you don't understand. When, something, when you click something and it goes out into cyberspace, you never know who's going to pick it up and where it's going to end up 10 years from now, 15 years from now, or tomorrow. Now, needless to say, she agreed and we understood. And, you know, we got into practical conversations about dealing with uh, being feeling like a victim and that kind of stuff. So without getting into the whole treatment plan, which is a whole different story and a whole nother show, I want to really focus a little bit here on cyberbullying. And when we uh, when we come back from break, we're going to have, we're gonna deal with the experts, an expert who deals with this kind of stuff and can give us a little guidance, right? Uh, but, you know, in Japan, if you cyberbully somebody, you go to jail. No, I mean real jail. So it used to be something simple, but now Japan's parliament approved penalizing criminal def defamation by up to one year in prison after the suicide of a young reality television star prompted some huge national debate over cyberbullying. The country decided to strengthen its defamation law after Hannah Kimura took her life at just 22 years of age in 2020. She was a professional wrestler, subject to daily barrage of insults and such. Anyway, she's received all kinds of hateful messages and so on. Ultimately, two people were convicted of defaming her. I'm not sure defaming is the right word. And only fine 9,000 yen or $66, so on and so on. Uh, the, the fine in New York here, the, the, the New York alternate side, uh, the fine was not much greater. It was no more than a parking ticket. So now in, in, the, in Japan, if a person is uh, found cyberbullying, guilty of cyberbullying, the law amends that adds a prison term of one year with an option of forced labor and increased fines up to 300,000 yen, which is $2,200 to convicted violators. That's an awful lot of money. Currently, the law only holds a punishment of, of uh, 
short-term detention, a few days, and fines of less than ten of uh, less than ten thousand yen, seventy-four bucks. This leads to really bad, bad, bad. Uh, deter, uh, you know, as a deterrent, it doesn't count for anything. You know, nor kind of less than a parking fine to cyber bully somebody who's who you know who potentially is is you know is is not in a good place and leads you to a bad place, leads us to a place where we need to talk about um, how to impact this kind of stuff and how somebody deals with cyberbullying. And when we come back from, from break here, we're going to deal with a guest who's an expert at this kind of stuff. This is what he does for a living. He's a doctor, he's a suicidologist, and he's an emergency psychiatrist, and he deals with kids and families and, their, and, and this kind of struggle about wanting to kill yourself from this kind of terrible stuff. This is what he does for a living. And um, really good guy. So when we come back from break, we're going to deal with him, talk some more about this, see if we can figure out why kids want to kill themselves and what we can do to prevent it. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud 640 Toronto. Okay, and welcome back. You're on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud, your host this evening. Thanks for being here with us. And Heather and Natasha, we're all here to try to help you get through the day and maybe help us a little bit too. So continuing on with the discussion around uh, cyberbullying and suicidology and suicide issues, we're you know, referring back as you heard in the opening here about the Amanda Todd story, that's really just part of it and a little bit about what they're doing in Japan. And, and you know, so we're talking, you know, opening up here, talking about cyberbullying and um, what that leads to really. It's, you know, cyberbullying, I don't want to get into the whole technology of it because that's not what we're about tonight, but it's about the impact. You know, it's my mother used to say, if you say something nasty to somebody, it lasts forever. Um, and she's right. Right. So she would also say, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say something don't say anything at all. So, you know, I, but when you come to cyberbullying, it's a different world. It's not the same as saying something nasty to somebody at a party or, you know, in the parking lot or at work. This stuff sticks and it sticks forever. And for young people, it's devastating. And for many of them, make them want to kill themselves. And of course, you know, the Amanda Todd story and how what that led to and the world's now talking about this kind of stuff because of her loss, uh, because or, and, and, and what she had to deal with. So um, how do you talk about this stuff? Who's who is like, who's the expert when it comes to this kind of stuff? We've managed to find one. His name is Dr. Tyler Black. He's actually a suicidologist, which I, I'd never heard of, uh, and an emergency psychiatrist. And I guess he deals with this kind of stuff um, for a living on an ongoing basis. Dr. Tyler, first of all, thank you for joining us this evening and uh, really uh, remarkable, uh, remarkable uh, practice you've chosen. What, what is a suicidologist? I mean, I've been practicing for over 40 years. I've, I've never heard of you. Or I would have called you years ago. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for having me. My and, um, you know, it, these, these discussions can be really difficult, but to me, you know, it's really an important discussion. Suicide is a, a leading cause of death. It's the number one cause of death under the age of, of 40 in Canada. And, and so being a suicidologist is a lot like being an oncologist uh, studying cancer. Um, you're, you're studying something that's hard to talk about. It's, it's often sad and there, there can be some really bad outcomes, but there's really good reason to do the work because the more we can understand about suicide, the more that we can, um, uh, you know, understand yeah. sort of yeah. what, what brings people to that place. Yeah. And more importantly, the more we can create policies that give governments and organizations opportunities to reduce uh, suicide for people that that aren't um, seeking help 
um, you, you know, it's 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 work worth doing. So even though it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty sad topic, it's a very interesting topic, and it's one that's really rife for a lot of new information. There's so much more we need to know. So when you were in medical school, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say it was some time not so horribly long ago, I'm sure. When you're in medical school, you have to pick a specialty. This yeah. was one that was offered, or this this kind of became something because well, you know, it's, I, I don't yeah. think it's very traditional. I, I did my uh, background in, um, you know, my general medical school experience was really, um, I loved kind of all the specialties that I did. And I particularly liked psychiatry. So when I went into residency, I chose psychiatry. Right. Uh, when I went into um, uh, psychiatry, um, I loved working with kids. So I went into child and adolescent psychiatry as a specialty. Oh and when it came time to doing um, research and teaching, um, the one thing that I noticed is that there was this big black box uh, about suicide. Like there were so many things that were being propagated that were myths. There was so much that was felt like you couldn't talk about. And I do what I always do in life. When I, when I don't understand something, I'm an intellectualizer. I love to read about it. I go through all the data. And so by the time I had I'd read through a lot of the research on suicide, I realized that a lot of the things that were being taught to physicians and, and medical care providers and even the public, they just weren't true. And I thought there was a really big um, opportunity to, to establish some expertise in suicide. And so I started arcing my career towards um, emergency psychiatry and then ultimately ended up in a full-time position where I'm basically seeing about a thousand kids a year in various stages of crisis um, wow. as a full, full-time as a psychiatrist, but really in a crisis state. Wow. Um, so I've developed a, a pretty strong clinical experience with kids who have suicidal thinking. And then a lot of my research and, and teaching is based around suicide now too. What, uh, if I may ask, if you're allowed to say, what hospital are you attached to, if any, in Canada or Toronto? <laughs> I, I don't represent my employer, but I work at a major, uh, a major children's hospital in BC. Oh, from British Columbia. Okay. Yeah. Maybe that's where I'm getting to such a chilled attitude. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. Listen, I, I got a lot of questions. So we try to get through as many as we can. We don't have that much time, but um, we've got two or three that really matter. Sure. What messages do you share with people, young people, right? We both work with young people, but in particular, what, what messages do you share with young people about, you know, trying to sell them life? Mm-hmm. I, I think... Uh, there's a really important role for kids um, when they're developing. And, you know, when you, you go through your mental health training or you do some sort of therapeutic training, we often learn about, learn about the stages, right. but it's really helpful for people to understand that especially adolescence is a time of identity discovery. And, and in identity discovery, you need a few things as sort of basics. You need to know that you're safe and that you're loved for who you are. Right. Uh, you need to be able to, Um, experience an identity and see whether or not it fits for you. We see some kids trying on identity hats, you know, a kid will go goth for a couple of years and then they'll be really into sports. Um, But as they navigate that, they always need to be held in a space of, I love you for who you are. And, and, and so, you know, when, when kids are feeling like they're not like other kids, I really want them to understand that there's no such thing as normal. Um, normal, it really depends on what you're talking about. And even then it's only kind of like what the average is. There's a huge variety of the way people are and experience life. There's really concrete reasons to be depressed about the world, like climate change and racism and all sorts of things. You don't have to love life or love the world. Um, but you should know that that you have an uh, uh, an impact on those around you, that you're cared, that you can find people who care for you if you don't currently have that, and that typically if you're able to um, 
shape the life that you want. You'll be surrounded by people who support you. What, um, that's a wonderful message. What, what, um, you make you just make me feel good just listening to you. Uh, what tips do you have for, for kids and parents who, who deal with the outcome and the risk and the fear of cyberbullying specifically? Yeah. Well, there's an electronic space. Um, there's some reassuring things to know about cyberbullying. So despite the fact that, um, you know, it, technology is so much more prevalent, the incidence of cyberbullying has not really changed much in a really long time. Um, bullying occurs really importantly between peers. And, and so it's really important to remember that when you have someone who's um, in a position of authority or power, like a teacher or a boss or a parent, they do not bully people, they abuse people. And, and bullying is a, you know, a, a, an establishment of a social hierarchy between peers um, right. using intimidation or social tactics of coercion. Right. And it creates an imbalance where there shouldn't be an imbalance. And, and in those situations, it's really important that we recognize that both bullies and the bullied they have relatively similar risk factors. One of the things that separates bullies and the bullied are that bullies tend to be externalizers who take their distress and externalize it to other people. And the bullied tend to be internalizers, people who receive stress and take it inside and, and don't right. talk about it. And so you have this kind of perfect mix between the two. So, um, so the risk factors for being bullied and or, or for being uh, a, a bully are relatively the same. They involve having parents that believe that bullying is just a rite of passage and teachers who are okay with bullying is kind of like a thing kids do. Um, crowded class sizes, chaotic environments, yep. experiencing abuse in the home, being exposed to trauma, having um, psychiatric disorders like depression or anxiety. And so, if, you know, I often find that it's very easy to generate a lot of sympathy for those who are bullied. Um, but very, a lot of the time, the kids that are doing the bullying, they come from the same backgrounds with the same disadvantages. And so I think as a society, we need to take a little bit more of a holistic approach uh, because I see both bullies and the bullied. And um, I really, I really see a lot of the same things in both. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I would, uh, I, I treat both. I treat the both the victim and the perpetrator, right? Mm -hmm. So, or the bully and the bullied, as you and the say. highest risk group is actually the the victim perpetrator, someone who's been a victim of bullying, exactly, and then becomes a bully themselves. They're they're exactly. easily associated with the highest rates of disorder and suicide. Uh, yeah, as you know, it doesn't take long in the drill down to uh, no. learn that someone in the family was abusive, right? Yeah, uh, or maybe lots of people in the family were abusive. Yeah. You know, it's um. In the world of cyberspace, in the world of sharing, I mean, this is a little out there a little bit, but what I try to get me to understand, I mean, I'm the father of three boys. Um, I do have a granddaughter. She's, you know, about to turn, you know, that age. Um, what, what makes an 11 year old, 12 year old, 10 year old, 13 year old, what makes them feel okay about taking a picture of their very young, very developing bodies at one stage, upper, lower, the complete thing or not, and send it to people. Well, it's, it's, well, most, you know, most kids, excuse me, most kids don't even like to look at themselves kind of half naked in the mirror. 
Well, you know, it's, um, there's, you know, to try to come up with a general statement about that is really challenging because usually, uh, for example, when it's peers, um, there is some sort of romantic interest. And of course, kids at a very young age can get uh, interested in sex. Um, and then when it involves um, an age mismatch, it can often be exploitative where the child is encouraged or groomed uh, to do something very specifically by someone who has the ability to manipulate that person. Um, what I would say is that, you know, looking at the technology itself as the problem is where I see a lot of parents and schools and policies yeah, make yeah. a mistake because, yeah. of course, you know, social media is one of the reasons why kids care about the climate and are so less likely to be transphobic than their older, you know, parents, yep. um, because social media connects us all and there's good things about social media. Um, there's an age at which kids can be highly influenced. And I always think that when parents make technology kind of the thing that we don't agree with or that we um, you kind of do in your room, um, you're re removing one of the most important aspects of parenting, which is providing context for things that are going on. I often will talk to a parent who's, you know, um, uh, they would just watch their kid's soccer game and they can tell me like how many goals they scored and how many times they touched the ball and how long they played and what the coach said. <laughs> right. And then I ask them, uh, and what video games they like to play? Oh, I don't know. You know, and, and, and yet video gaming is like yep. a huge part of their life. And, yep. and if you don't take it really seriously and try to put it into context, you know, if you don't have discussions like, oh, what was it like to have that discussion online with your friend? Like, how are they doing? And what did you talk about? Um, and when it's, um, you know, playing a game, like, what did you do good? What happened in the game? And, you know, parents often disconnect from video gaming and social media, but it, it, it is a big part of their life. And if you treat it like any other friendship or activity, you're there to provide context. You know, uh, uh, two 14-year-olds who are experimenting um, uh, sexually and on the internet, they're sharing things. That's not a lot different than two 14 year olds in the real world experimenting and sharing things, but um, at a sleepover, you know, at a sleepover. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, when, when, when the internet is involved, one of yeah. the downsides is um, the internet is permanent. You know, if you yeah. send something to someone, they can keep it and, and a relationship can change or that person cannot be trustworthy. And so I do, I, I think one of the unique things about, you know, a personal experience versus an online experience is there's unfortunately a record of the online experience. And so kids need to understand at an early age that what they do on the internet is, is permanent and you can't unsend a photo. Even people have gotten really clever about taking pictures of Snapchat and things like that. Yeah. So yeah. even technologies that are designed to self-destruct don't. Um, so, so, um, so, but you know, when, when parents are positive about the technology, but here's how to be safe while you use it, it goes a lot better than saying, don't use it because then you're just ostracizing the, the child from other kids who are all using it. I'm talking to Dr. Tyler Black. He is a suicidologist and an emergency psychiatrist in Canada here somewhere. Some lucky, uh, hospital has him, uh, Dr. Black, uh, incredible guests. I love the work you do. Lots of support for what you do. Uh, love to have you on again because you're right in, my, uh, right in our wheelhouse. Uh, but I hope you don't have to be so busy. Really, <laughs> Thank I'm you. Really, Me really too. Hope, I'm really hoping next year you got more time for golf or yeah. mountain climbing or whatever yeah. it is you love to do. You're listening Absolutely. to Yona Bud here on the Road to Recovery, 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, we're going to kind of continue along the vein of looking at kind of what 
how we can help people get over certain stuff. You know, we've been talking about drugs, we've been talking about bullying, cyberbullying, and so on. You know, there's a lot of stuff in the news. You've been reading a lot, uh, hearing a lot on our network, you know, watching our sister station, um, and seeing a lot of stuff as it relates to shootings and things, hate, acts of hate and, and violent acts of hate that we see in schools and on the streets. And we're celebrating you know, a year memorial of, a, of, a, of someone driving down the sidewalk and a year memorial of someone, you know, committing a horrific offense to a, with a Muslim family, uh, which their celebration was last week sometime, I think around the 6th. And, you know, you, you kind of sit back and wonder what makes those people tick and how do you get to them? How do you kind of get to um, the type of people that are, are, you know, committing these kind of horrific uh, offenses. And, you know, I sit back as a therapist and a, and a crisis worker and I say, you know, these are hurt and broken people as much as they've just committed something horrific. Um, and as this conspiracy theories kind of move through the fringes and, you know, people are talking through all kinds of different pol you know, polarized political sites and such, um, a child and youth worker in, in 2017, his name is David O'Brien, he was contacted by police about alarming case. Uh, the authorities learned of a school shooting plot a threat uh, that they thought was real serious. Um, some guy, young person had made efforts to buy a gun. Anyway, O'Brien said he was experienced in gang prevention. That's kind of his background. Uh, he was tapped to help address the underlying cause. The plan, he said, was inspired by neo-Nazi neo ideology. Uh, it was the official launch of O'Brien's specialization. He works uh, that today, sends him to Ali's coffee shops, kind of sounds like me back in the day, across the GTA to meet young men who uh, other social workers, psychiatrists don't want to go near. They don't want to touch him. No one wants to help them for fear of the workplace concerns. So he is truly one of those um, kind of, I would call them superheroes, people um, that, you know, I met many of them in my days working on the street that actually don't really care if it's an alleyway or a cardboard box under a bridge. We've been fortunate to invite David to join us this evening. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me tonight. Uh, it's my pleasure. And first of all, I want to give you I want to give you all the kudos and hugs, if I could, if you were here uh, for the kind of work you do, not because, you know, you're doing it, you know, to, uh, you know, you're doing it because you're, you're fearless. I, you're doing it because you know what needs to be done. And that's very clear in the kind of work that you do. Give me give us a bit of a background outside of the story here. Um, you know, we're, we're, give us a bit of a background and kind of how, how that tap on the shoulder started and, and kind of what a day looks like for you now. Yeah, so back in um, 2017, um, we were beginning to be called in to intervene in situations with young adults and youth who were um, on the pathway to what we call radicalization or violent extremism. And, um, you know, we were, were part of the Focus Table, which is a group of organizations across the city of Toronto that receive referrals from um, the city of Toronto, uh, Toronto Police Service. And um, we noticed a trend that when these cases came up for presentation for intervention, um, a lot of agencies would back away. And so we said, "Hey, wh why don't we why don't we check this out? Why don't we try this out? Maybe we can be helpful here." And so um, we took a few cases in 2017, uh, primarily um, young white men engaging with um, neo-Nazism online. We had no clue what to expect or how we would even handle this um, and no real template to work from. So anyways, we pulled together a team of professionals, including uh, youth workers 
and therapist and um, built a team around this family and these youth in particular. And um, we found out, you know, that was quite successful. People were able to re-engage with community, address the underlying mental health issues that led them into this space of hate and begin to disengage with um, some of the communities, online communities that, that they were involved with. And so in 2020, uh, we were tapped on the shoulder to move ahead a proposal to actually develop a program uh, that's interdisciplinary involving many different healthcare professionals, um, you know, with the hopes of engaging youth and young adults um, prior to getting radicalized, but also youth and young adults that are radicalized or youth and adults that are um, have been intercepted by the police who want to commit attacks here, right here in the state of Toronto. So, so that's how things began. And my background, um, I have a long history in, in youth mental health, working with gangs, um, you know, working within the child welfare system, and and kind of working with youth that um, have have been forgotten about or are considered too violent to work with, and kind of you know written off. And so I, I've always enjoyed that type of work. And I built a team that um, enjoys engaging with these folks. Interesting. You're, you know, you, you talk about, um, I, like, I'm so interested in, in, you know, I've been a youth worker and, and a crisis worker for, you know, over 40 years. And, you know, I'm just a little guy, right? So are you, are you comfortable in sort of handling yourself, as we would say on the street, in the event that something broke out or you grab your phone and walk away? Yeah, I, I think it's 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 some of my lived experience, and and, and when I say lived experience, um, I mean yeah, maybe some of the communities I grew up with as a t uh, you know and as a teen, but also yep. my work my work lived experience. You know, I, I think right. I, I you know when you have understanding of why someone becomes violent, right. suddenly your fear really drops. Like it, it's almost like you see the connected dots, right. and then our role is to help that person. Um, realize that and understand that for themselves. And so that fear begins to dissipate. And, you know, a lot of the youth we work with have, you know, attachment issues. And so when we first meet them, um, they, they really push people away, like through violence. Right. Yeah. And that, yeah. they, they've known not to work their whole life, right? Right. right. So right. Uh, it's kind of seeing through that and working through that. Once you do, then that's when the real work begins. Yeah, I get it. So my I guess my question is how, you know, how... Uh, so I, I guess straight up, I'll ask it this way. How do you treat hate? How do you treat hate? You treat it by engaging with hate. Um, you treat it by, you know, being someone that can be there to listen about what this person's grievance is. You treat it by not being not judgmental, believe it or not, even though you sit there and you're being attacked verbally. Right. Uh, but, but really, you treat it by building trust in a relationship. Uh, you treat it by offering people opportunities and, and providing them access to things. And, you know, all those all those things around access and trust building and and, you know, and ad addressing these mental health issues that are underlining sometimes, yeah. yeah. you know, all, all those are that package of that treatment. And, and that's how you do it. But but it's really about relationship and trust. And these are folks that have been expelled, kicked out of systems, um, you know, throughout most of their life. And so we actually don't do that. So if they're violent, you know, verbally towards us, uh, we'll continue to work with them. And that's how you do it. Um, okay. But some would say in some cases, uh, that's almost like, you know, kind of uh, uh, providing them a, with a platform to be violent. So in other words, almost enabling the negative behavior. So as, for example, if I'm working with somebody and they become uh, despondent or verbally, you know, aggressive, you know, I'll say to them, listen, you know, uh, 
I, I really need you to calm down and catch your breath. If not, we need to re-engage another time. Um, but you'll sit through it. Is that what you're telling me? Well, well, we'll we'll talk through it to a certain extent, and then we begin to role model boundaries, as as you've just spoken about. So, so basically, you know, um, we also point out the reason why they're being abusive to us or aggressive towards us. It's really to push us away. We we point those things out for people, um, and so we don't suspend people or expel people because they're in the program because they're they're radicalized, right? So that that's oh, why, that's I... why that's why they're coming to us. Okay, so the, so coming to you is a different understanding. My understanding was as you were going to them. We we've only got a couple of minutes left, and um, uh, are you are you actually going out to meet them where they are, or you're yeah, booking, so what booking I mean, them through a center? Yeah, when I when I mean coming to us, I mean being referred to us, right? Got, so yeah, got so, you. Okay, so where we meet people where they're at, and, and believe it or not, a lot of these folks have have had difficulties accessing services because you got to go to an office, you got to do a big intake process, right? And usually right, they right. never make it through that. So we'll right. go on the streets and, and meet people, and that's usually how that relationship begins. And already that's a change for them in terms yep. of, yep. you know, hey, this is really different. You know, this guy's meeting me on a street corner. Uh, dropping off hygiene supplies, you know, and so really looking at those basic needs and building that rapport and trust and, and really non-traditional ways of providing mental health services. And uh, certainly um, it's been really successful. And again, you know, just to kind of your listeners may, you know, realize, oh, wait a minute, you know, like, how are you addressing that hate? But yeah, we do teach boundaries and, and through those relationships with us, um, you know, empathy begins to grow towards us and, and we see changes happening because a lot of these folks don't have real relationships. Uh, they have superficial relationships that are, um, you know, based on, on hate. Hate, online hate communities and within those networks right so 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 i think it's it's that boundary it's that kind of setting limits and expectations but also building a relationship at the same time i'm talking to david o'brien he's the director of mental health at yorkton family services he also leads the eta program real quick uh got about 30 seconds left how big a guy are you well, give me an idea how, how big a guy you uh, I'm 5'11", and I'm gaining weight, maybe, <laughs> and 210 pounds. <laughs> okay, so not so, like, not such like a big guy. No. Okay, amazing. Um, I got to tell you, man, uh, just listening to you talk and listening to the way you respond, you're obviously, your heart's in the right place. You're, you're doing this because you got a love for it. And uh, truly, man, my heart goes out to you, my, my support to you and your organization. Uh, you're welcome on this show anytime if you feel like sharing something you think we should know about. Uh, but uh, kudos to the phenomenal work that you do. And uh, every, as far as I'm concerned, every life's worth saving, uh, even some that you may not like for the moment, but eventually learn to love. I'm on with David O'Brien, Director of Mental Health at Yorkton Family Services. Great guy, great guest. Have him back soon. Uh, you're on the road to recovery here with Yona Bud. 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back. You're on the road to recovery. I'm your host this evening, Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're continuing on with uh, you know stuff related to, uh, I think, wellness and kids and such, as you can tell from the, the lead of the story. Um, we were talking about cyberbullying and stuff. So we're getting to a point now where we're talking about some real stuff that's going on in our community. Uh, we, everyone's been talking about the opioid crisis and they think of people in cardboard boxes under a bridge or behind a mall somewhere who you know, don't have homes or people to go to or anything like that. Well, in case you didn't recognize me from something else, I am in fact um, the clinical director of several facilities that deal with um, patients that have issues with mental health and addiction or substance abuse. So the opioid crisis is definitely in my wheelhouse on the, uh, my day job. 
And uh, I kind of bring that together tonight if I can, uh, as we're having this conversation about opioids. So uh, really what we're talking about specifically is high school kids. Yeah, 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 I know. High school kids, young kids that are, you know, you know, having issues with overdoses and so on. They're taking things they shouldn't. They're buying street drugs that have stuff in it. If you've heard of the word fentanyl, it's all over the place. It's in marijuana. It's in everything kids touch and play with that they shouldn't. Well, there's an organization called the Advanced Coronary Treatment Foundation, ACT, and they've developed a program to train students along with things, other things that they do, train students on the use of naloxone. And naloxone is the thing that we used to inject. Now we provide it in through the nose, spray it through the nose, and it reverses the overdose most of the time when someone has an opioid um, overdose issue. My guest this evening is Sandra Clark, and she's the executive director of the ACT Foundation, and they've got a program designed to teach kids uh, about how to administer this particular medication to save lives, I think is the desired outcome. Welcome to the show, Sandra. Thank you so much for staying up late. Thank you. Glad to be here. Perfect. So give me a little bit of a background how, about ACT, how you came together, and then we can talk about mandate and that kind of stuff. So the ACT Foundation is a national charitable foundation. Our mission is to promote health and empower Canadians to save lives. And our major focus is on working with high schools across the country and helping them to set up CPR and defibrillator training programs for students, free for students. The way we do that is once the school boards agree to offer the program, then we fundraise to donate training mannequins to schools and we train the teachers to train the students. And in Ontario, for example, we've set it up in, um, well, I'll say across Canada, we've set the program up in 1800 high schools across the country. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, and we've trained thousands of phys ed and health teachers uh, wow. to train their students. Uh, 350,000 students are trained in CPR every year across Canada, and 4.8 million students have been trained to date. So we have 4.8 million uh, lifesavers out there. So everybody should learn CPR, but it's really great to uh, for people to know that young people are learning it as part of their high school experience. So they're leaving school with the, the skills and knowledge to save lives. So we're very excited about that, and we're, we're just adding, we're just enhancing the CPR training uh, now with the opioid overdose response because it's a natural fit yeah i would say um remarkable opportunity i'm just sitting back as a counselor and a crisis worker with you know, works with kids for years and years and i'm sitting back thinking okay i got him in front of me we're teaching him how to do stuff on the dummy we teach him how to spray in the naloxone so what else can i sneak in there like can we give them some education around you know how to talk to their friends about maybe not taking the drugs that might kill them so what they're in adding on the um, opioids overdose response training to the CPR training that the students are already learning from their teachers, uh, what the teachers are going to be teaching, because we're rolling it out in the fall, to right. interested schools, it's a voluntary program, uh, the training will teach students what are opioids and how do opioid overdoses happen. Uh, the teachers will talk about what is naloxone and how does it work, Rec how to recognize a suspected opioid overdose and responding, uh, responding to a suspected opioid overdose, including calling 911 quickly and to get EMS on the way. Um, and also if the person is unresponsive and not breathing, to perform CPR as they've been trained to do for right, any resuscitation. Right. And right. then we're also now adding 
uh, the training in the use of nasal naloxone spray, which is easy to use, and it can help save that life. So it's adding another life-saving tool to the student's life-saving toolbox, essentially. It's one more skill that is relevant, that students want to learn, and it, um, it can help save lives. It's amazing. I'm just sitting here, like you know, tapping my toes out of out of you know, with glee, uh, knowing that you're out there and your folks are out there doing this kind of stuff. If you're just tuning in real quick here, you're on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud, your host, and we're talking with Sandra Clark. She's the executive director of ACT Foundation. They're involved in teaching all your kids across the country and how to uh, save lives with CPR, and now adding naloxone or opioid. Uh, um, life-saving opioid reduction, reverse uh, skills and, and, and uh, technologies using things like naloxone spraying in their nose, teaching them how to do that kind of stuff and teaching them furthermore about opioids and the dangers of those kinds of drugs. You know what? I, I got to tell you, Sandra, it, you know, the world doesn't, it's unfortunate that more people don't know that organizations like you, like yours, are out there doing what it is that you do. Uh, I think they recognize the CPR thing, but they figure that just comes from the school. You know what I mean? They have yeah. no idea that you're out there fundraising and you know asking people for money and beg borrowing and probably not stealing, but close uh, to get it, whatever it is that you need to make this work. And and I just don't think people recognize it or, in fact, you know, respect the kind of stuff that you do. So I'm glad that you're able to get out there and, and tell people what you're doing. Uh, what, what kind of results have you seen? Have you heard any stories yet of a kid who saved a kid uh, with the stuff you've tra trained them with, um, with respect specifically to naloxone? Well, we haven't rolled it out to students oh, yet. Oh, I see. I yeah, see. We've been, yeah, we've been offering it. We've started to offer it the training uh, to high schools. Uh, and in um, just recently, we've trained over, we've trained about 650 teachers uh, across several provinces, including Ontario, to uh, from about 230 high schools. And those teachers are now trained to train their students, and they will begin training their students in the fall as I they see. And they will, it's the opioid overdose response training because it's an enhancement to the CPR program because it's aligned with it seamlessly. The students will learn that the teachers will teach it as part of their CPR courses. So um, we'll have we'll have news for you next year, uh, but it will only begin in the fall for students in schools as they uh, begin to roll it out. So my obvious question is, why fundraising? Why isn't the government all over this? They're spending crazy amounts of money doing all kinds of silly things that they think are help is, is going to help. Um, why aren't they helping you with this kind of stuff, the financial stuff? Well, actually, uh, I'm happy to report that we have received a, a grant, a contribution from Health Canada uh, to help uh, implement, develop and implement this program. Uh, that came after we held a pilot. So I'm going to go back a few years. We, we started with the CPR program in offering that to schools. And you mentioned fundraising. We've donated a class set of 30 mannequins to every average size school. We wow. bring in local CPR agencies and instructor trainers train the students uh, or train the teachers to be the trainers. And we get the schools the mannequins and then they start training the students as part of the grade nine. In Ontario, it's part of the grade nine health and phys ed curriculum. Uh, so the teachers are giants in here. You know, the teachers yeah. are the ones, yeah. they say yes to it. The school boards say yes. And yeah. then the students 
say yes. But um, so we ran a pilot though. We had teachers asking us, okay, you've given us a CPR training, we're teaching that. And then we enhanced the CPR with defibrillation training a few years later. And they said, okay, we love this. The students love this. It makes sense. There's defibrillators in the community and defibrillators save lives. So now students know to start CPR and to also use a defibrillator if it uh, if there's one available. And then they came back, teachers, and they started asking us a few years ago, can you add naloxone nasal spray training to the uh, to the program? And we looked at that and we thought, hmm, that makes sense. We're hearing this from teachers, so let's For pilot sure. it. Yeah, and we ran a pilot in uh, Ottawa. Uh, four Ottawa high schools, 15 teachers uh, were trained to teach how to respond to an opioid overdose response, uh, opioid overdose uh, to, as part of their CPR training. Uh, they trained over 180 students and the results of the pilot were really positive. Uh, the majority of students said that learning how to respond to an opioid associated emergency was an, important to learn as part of their CPR training. Uh, most of them had never uh, used no, uh, they didn't know how to use naloxone nasal yep. spray. The majority yep. said after learning how to use it, they felt comfortable that they could use it. And yep. they felt that they could help save a life. And they felt very excited. I sat in on some of the uh, student training and I actually saw a number of students thanking their teachers for teaching this. I mean, they're just so, you know, they just want to be empowered. The teachers felt the same way. The teachers, the vast majority of teachers um, thought it's something that should be trained to, uh, as part of the CPR program. They said, this is relevant for students. They want to know it. They want to be empowered. So we've had lots of CPR saves. That's, uh, that's, that's, yeah. like, that's great news, oh. great results. I, I, yeah. I can hear the energy. I, I just want to thank you so much for being here. Sandra Clark, she's the executive director, ACT Foundation. You got 10 seconds. How do people send you money? Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, uh, act at actfoundation.ca, and we can provide them with information on how to do that. But that Amazing. is our email, act, A-C-T at actfoundation.ca. Okay, perfect. Everyone should just send them some cash and let's see if we can save some lives. We'll be back. We've got much, much, much more stuff to do. Yona Bud here on the Road to Recovery, 640 Toronto. Tears I'm crying where you don't want to feel the pain Tell me little girl don't you worry Change is coming but it stays the same I want to feel the sun shine The same that it does on the other side I want to see my sisters fly into places that And welcome back to The Road to Recovery. This is Yona Bud. You're here for the second half of our show. And uh, that's a beautiful song. It's called Rise. And uh, the young lady who sings that, her name is Sarah Kay. And uh, talk a little bit about her for a minute. If you're not sure where you are, you are on The Road to Recovery. I'm Yona Bud, your host here at 640 Toronto. And we thank you for joining in. Lots to do for the next hour here. So hang in and, um, and join us. And if you feel like you want to say something, share something, 416-870-6400 is how you get a hold of me tonight. So let me tell you something. This song just got launched. Uh, the release date was June the 3rd. It was launched through Rocket Fuel uh, Records. And um, Sarah Kay is the artist, Dave Antonacci, the producer. Dave's a good friend of mine. Uh, we've known each other a very long time. He's uh, one of those people who not only can do but can teach. He uh, is a, a teacher at, uh, an expert teacher at um, uh, 
Metalworks, which is a facility where Sarah was uh, had gone to school. She's a young Indigenous artist, and she was raised in Thunder Bay. Dave uh, met her while teaching there, and uh, they uh, got together and uh, produced this song. And uh, he called me. He said, listen, man, you got to talk to this kid. She's uh, got a lot going on. She's got a real inspirational uh, tone about her, uh, not so much about the song. We're not really a music show here, uh, but about her, about Sarah. And, you know, what makes her special? And um, Dave's, David has uh, taught many, many, many talented students, uh, but Sarah really has risen to the top of that that cream, that, that cream, so to speak, rose right to the top. Um, raised in Thorn, uh, Thunder Bay, Ontario, <clears throat> and her music is best described uh, as adult contemporary pop with an infusion of authentic Indigenous sounds. She's shared her amazing talent uh, with her community for years. She started at the young age of 12, visiting communities and schools to help encourage and promote healthy lifestyles and to follow their dreams, especially amongst indig Indigenous youth. Uh, her parents were role models for her. They took in youth struggling with substance abuse and poverty and uh, not living in adequate you know, living situations. So that kind of shaped Sarah into being kind of a role model for a community, just a special girl doing special things in a special way. And she graduated 2019 from Metalworks, which is a very um, prestigious school for the performing arts. And uh, she was awarded Outstanding Graduate of the Year Award from Career Colleges of Ontario. Then she graduated. She went to work for 106.5 Element FM. It's a Toronto-based um, radio station owned by the Aboriginal People's Television Network. And she quickly became an on-air personality. And uh, she's my guest here this evening. Sarah, hi. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, man. Loud and clear. And so does the <laughs> whole world, kiddo. Um, cool song. Love the tune. Read the words. Keep reading the words. You know, you want to feel the tears I'm crying, but you don't want to feel the pain. You tell me, little girl, don't worry. Change is coming, but it stays the same. I want to feel the sunshine that's same, the same as it does on the other side. I want to see my sisters flying places they never knew and it goes on you got it you got all of you got to go out and get this get this tune download it from however you do that these days i used to go out and buy it in a music store not so much right you can tell how old i am young lady <laughs> a lot of a lot of talent and i don't mean uh, just the music stuff like you're 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 rocking it out there making a big difference and like no offense but you're like a minute old how does this feel <laughs> it's it's overwhelming and it's great to be a part of this message and I never really expected it to kind of go this way and even like working with Dave and it just all happened and then halfway through it I was like oh my goodness I get to release this song of a message that I wholeheartedly believe and have believed for a long time and I just wanted to take the time to make sure I was putting it out there the right way so for <laughs> to be sitting here now with it released, and we actually released it yesterday because we did want to postpone it closer to National Indigenous Peoples Day. All right. But yeah. So like this is just still fresh and having it released. And I'm, I'm being, I've been using TikTok to kind of communicate <laughs> with possible new listeners because that's just the way we, we do it now. Yeah. So yeah. It's been good. Sure. And it's, it's great to hear from other people who have similar emotions and like similar stories to me. And so let's get let, so let's get to that. Let, let's I don't want to cut you off, but let's get to that a little bit in the lyrics. I want to do a little more with you on the lyrics. So yeah. I want to see. I want to. See, we'll go through it here. I want to see them rise. I want to see them rise. I promise you, we will rise. Rise. 
So let's stop there for a second. Give me the idea. What was in your head when Rise came about as you're thinking? I mean, I've, like I say, I've known David forever. I've seen him. I've watched him. I've been a part of watching him create. Um, but inspirations come to different people different ways. Um, where did this come from? Is it? Did you feel yourself down at some point where you had to find yourself Rise? Or is this watching you know, what's going on with others? I think I've... Throughout so many years, I've felt these emotions that I'm writing about in the song, but it kind of was a space where I was going through the emotions that I got on every National Indigenous Peoples Day of feeling proud of who I am, but still seeing all those negative connotations in the media. And just if you're reading the comment section, which sometimes I tend to do, even though I should just stay away. And so just feeling all those things and being like, wow, look at all these like great things that we're doing, but people still have such negative things to input. So from there, I kind of just wrote what exactly what I was feeling. And I was just overcome with emotion. It was written at like 3 to 4 a.m., which is when I feel like I do my best work just because I'm <laughs> able to be, I'm able to be vulnerable, like from yeah, myself yeah. even and the subconscious. Yeah. So it was just a stream of emotion and like, I can't, sometimes I write music and it's a complete blur because I was like, Oh, I just wrote this song, but I can't even believe it myself. So I think that was kind of that. It was just feeling. And I just wrote down exactly what that was in that moment to me. You want us to forgive and forget more of the song, but you don't understand our past. We are torn from the inside out with trauma we never used to have. I want to feel the sunshine the same as it does on the other side. I want to see my sisters flying to places they never knew. I want to see them rise. I want to see them rise. I promise you we will rise, rise. And then there's a break for the spoken word, um, I guess, in the song. I want to see them rise. I want to see them rise. I promise you we will rise. Um, so have you heard from people from your community since the launch of this thing? Yeah, uh, it's been pretty positive. Yeah, no and kidding. I'm very grateful because, you know, that's just, it's, you want to do a song like that justice and like the content of that song justice. And I want people to feel empowered. So I was hoping that they got the same reaction that I did when I wrote it. Mm-hmm. But you never know. But hearing those positive reactions and people being able to, feel like they can relate and that there's representation in the story that's being told that we have all felt, I think is great. And whether it was me, it was myself to do it or someone else, I think there just needs to be an abundance of that so that people can see that going on in their community and for their people. Right. Right. If you're just tuning in right now, you're on the road to recovery. My guest is Sarah Kay. Uh, a singer-songwriter uh, just launched a, a new song called Rise, uh, launched under the label of Rocket Fuel uh, Records. You got to get it. You got to listen to it. You got to, you got to know more about this young lady, um, Sarah. I got a whole bunch of questions. Uh, not a whole bunch, a few. Uh, um, the 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 bullying stories. The the stories. I mean, I was raised. You know, you know, I'm an old guy. I was raised back. You know, way back in the day when Fred Flintstone. You know, still had one of those vehicles you pedaled with your feet. But the, but you know, I, I was you know one of few Jewish kids in a school of primarily non-Jewish kids, and had all kinds of issues around being you know a Jewish kid. Um, I can only imagine how much worse that is. 
Um, I mean, I don't know what's worse is the word, but certainly the, the kind of pressure and the kind of, of you know, horrible, you know, stigmatized abuse that people take in the indigenous mm-hmm. community, especially young people, women in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, where you see that, I mean, with songs like this and people like you, inspirational, brilliant, intelligent, you know, talented individuals like you, you think this is, are we on our, are we, are we rising? Are we moving in the right direction to kind of change that tenor? I mean, I'm still, I still hear Jew jokes, right? So I'm not sure where this all goes. I feel like no matter what we do, there's always going to be a few of those people. And those are just miserable, closed-minded people. And it's just taking the people that we do, do support and are your ally and just running with those and just bringing up everyone else in your community as you're going along and doing it. I think there's no world where that doesn't exist, but I want to be in a world where it's definitely a lot better than it has been. So not just for indigenous people, just any person of color. So I'm, I'm excited to be a part of that. And more, the more I'm immersed in this community and seeing all the great that other people are doing, it just fuels the fire even more because I'm like, wow, look at what they're doing and all these amazing things that they're wanting to see happen and they're they're leading by example. So just getting a part of that community and seeing that, I'm like, okay, I, I want to do more. I can do more. So let's kind of bring other people up with us as we're going along. Amazing. It sounds like I'm talking to a, a 75 year old woman who's lived a long life. So, you know, a lot, of, a lot of year, a lot of lived years and wisdom in that, in that very young uh, package. Uh, um, quick question, like kind of an aside. Yeah. Let's just get off this for a second. Um, you attended a school for gifted individuals for performing arts. Mm-hmm. Um, I know how hard it is to play into those, to, to try to get into those, play into those audition and so on. How do you feel about the Toronto District School Board's change now for making those specialty programs, arts programs, writing programs, performing programs, kind of available to anybody who sort of has an interest, not necessarily a a talent. Are you you good with that? I think, yes. I, I would love to see more people just encouraged to express themselves because if they don't want to do it, they're going to not proceed anyways. So as long as you have the passion and the heart to do it, I'm for it. And there's so much room for creativity that I think shutting people down who want to get into it. Cause you never know what, how great someone can be. So right. I, I encourage it. I'm, I would rather have more creative people in, in the space than less be, and just letting their work speak for themselves too. Wow. Great answer. I agree with you, by the way. <clears throat> That's a great answer. Um, I'm, we have one quick, I'm going to wrap here in a little bit because I want to play some more of your song on the way out. Love to have you come back in a month or two after this uh, has really unfolded to kind of test your, uh, kind of test your, uh, your attitude then. Uh, real quick, what's the next, what do the next five years look like for Sarah Kay and her team? Oh, uh, these questions are always so intimidating to me because I am. That's why I get the big bucks, kid. I'm supposed to intimidate you and make you shake. No, I know. Well, you're succeeding. So I think the next five years are very, are going to, I want them to be filled with many performances, many creative collaborations. And I want them to be a part of, like, I want to be a part of the community and doing more work in my community. So I think I'm just going to work towards that every single day. And then wherever that kind of leads me, that's, 
where it leads me. I'm just going to put in like my heart and soul into whatever I'm doing and work with youth and just find different ways to travel and meet new people and get new opportunities. So I'm very open. And I think that's kind of why so much good things have come to me. It's just because I'm like, yeah, bring it on. Like the more the merrier and you just spread that goodness as much as you can. The world is happy to have you. We're happy to have you. I'm talking to Sarah Kay, an up-and-comer. Pay attention to her. She's going to change the world, there's no doubt. We're going to come back and do some more stuff. Check this out on our way out. This is another little piece of Rise from Sarah Kay, Rocket Fuel um, Records, and uh, just incredible listening. you got to listen to it. And welcome back. Thanks for being here. It's awesome to have you here. It's about 10, 23 or so. Do you know where your children are, your loved ones, your family, your your pets? If not, you probably should check out where they are. And if you really think anybody's in danger, call 911 right away. If you want to get a hold of us here tonight, 416-870-6400. If you want to get a hold of me anytime, 877-777-5808, 877-777-5808. Or send us an, an email here to uh, to road to recovery at 640toronto.com we'd love to hear from you and if you have ideas or thoughts about shows send them in we'll see if we can work them into what we're doing uh know your drugs is a global awareness campaign that was developed by a charitable organization canadians for for vanessa's law excuse me uh, canadians for vanessa's law is uh the organization that we're talking about primarily here right now um, an organization that's really uh, their job um, is, is the their job in particular. Excuse me, I'm just getting tied up here a little bit. Their job, um, the Canadians for Vanessa's Law, it's in collaboration with uh, RX RX Risk. It's Risk with an X in the middle. Uh, Vanessa's Law, protecting Canadians from Unsafe Drug Act. Um, it's named after Vanessa Young, who died on March 19, 20, 2000, when she was 15 years old, of a heart attack caused by a prescription drug that Health Canada eventually removed in August of 2000. Vanessa's father, Terence Young, he, was, he is a conservative member of Parliament for Oakville from Ontario, uh, in Ontario from 2008-15, introduced the federal law as a private member's bill December 2013. It received royal assent on November 14th after being passed unanimously. Um, and anybody, way by the way, the note here: anybody who's considering altering altering their dosage of prescription medication need not do that. It's prescription medication that can lead to really, really bad stuff. The guy that's in charge, or kind of the Canadian um, executive director of Canadians for Vanessa's Law, his name is David Carmichael, and he's going to be our guest here in just a second. Um, David, um, difficult story. Okay tell you straight up he's a father on a mission okay so he's on a cross-country speaking tour he's sharing a story that's very painful uh karen michael is desperate david is desperate to bring awareness about possibly uh possibility of adverse reactions to medications after his own over medication had tragic consequences he says here in the I'm not going to get deeply into the story because we're going to talk to him directly. Couldn't believe what I've done, Carmichael said. To this day, I can't believe I actually did it. In 2004, David was charged with first-degree murder and the death of his 11-year-old son, Ian. May he rest in peace. He believed that his healthy son had brain damage and needed to die. He was on medication. Medication caused Dad to uh, really be offside in terms of his judgment. He was taking an antidepressant prescribed by his doctor. 
he gave his son sleeping pills and had the opposite effect. And when his son started to struggle from the medication, he strangled him. And that's how the story goes. Um, and David's now on a tour. And uh, part of that tour is uh, joining us here this evening. David, thank you for joining us this evening. And um, so sorry for your loss. Well, I appreciate that. And it's uh, great to have an interest in the whole area of prescription drug use and making sure oh, yeah. we oh, yeah. inform consent. I mean, we really need to know the side effects of the drug before we decide we want to start taking them. You know, I get, I, I'll tell you a funny, not a funny story. It's a sad story, frankly. <clears throat> so I run a <clears throat> treatment center, David, and um, it's called the Fireman Stouffville, and we, we have inpatient yeah. treatment for many patients. And, you know, once in a while, uh, you get a patient who really needs to see a psychiatrist, really needs to be assessed by a psychiatrist. Potentially, there's a chemical imbalance of some sort at that point where medication, short-term, long-term, may be the right, you know, intervention at that time along with therapy. You follow me, right? So we yeah, get these get, yeah. get patients that are coming off all kinds of meds and coming off of opioids and, and amphetamines and all kinds of stuff. You send them to, a, to, the, to the psychiatrist for the assessment, the psychiatric team for assessment, and you tell them, you know, we have, uh, you know, concerns about their, their medication use and abuse and so on. Sure enough, don't you think they send them back with meds? Oh, yeah, I'm not surprised at all. Like it's, it's like, uh, yeah, so, you know, in your case, um, you know, what sort of, did you have any others? I don't want to get into this too much because it's really, that's not what this is about tonight. But did you, did you have other um, scenarios where you did things or felt you were going to do something that in hindsight probably wasn't right? Was there anything leading up to that tragic uh, event? Well, in, in total, I was on uh, the antidepressant Paxil for three weeks. And wow. I started taking it, and I had suicidal thoughts, and I thought, gosh, I got this drug just in time, or I was back on it just in time, because I was introduced right. to it. You know, in total, it was obviously a tragic year in our lives as a family. So, And then, um, you know, my doctor told me before that he had prescribed 60 milligrams, which was the maximum recommended dosage. So when I started to have suicidal thoughts, I had a full prescription for when I was previously prescribed Paxil, you know, which was about eight about 10 months earlier. And so I, I increased my dosage. Um, my doctor knew I had done it. I had some family support around me. I became severely psychotic. So I had delusions and there were five of them. You mentioned two of them. I thought my son had permanent brain damage. He had mild epilepsy, nothing I never thought about. I thought he was living hell. I thought he was going to kill my daughter. I thought he was also going to, you know, have my wife have a breakdown and then he was going to hurt other children. And what I've learned through this system, and this is the frightening part, one in 1,000 people on these particular type of antidepressants called SSRIs can become psychotic. And psychosis, in my case, were delusions. It can also be hallucinations where you see or hear things, but delusions. Yeah. And I was told by, I've seen about a dozen friends of psychiatrists, and I was told what it is is you take an issue and you blow it out of proportion 35 times and you act on it in a very calm, emotional, numbing way thinking you're doing the right thing. Yeah. And that's what I did. I was ready to spend 25 years in prison. And that's why I've set up Know Your Drugs. And, you know, knowyourdrugs.org, which is the website, it's, yeah. it's, it's modeled after Just Do It. It's an action. Know Your Drugs. It's a very simple message for Canadians, for people throughout the world. So knowyourdrugs.org is a portal. When people go there, there's questions they can ask their doctor. It helps them with research on looking at drug side effects. And it also helps them learn how to report suspected adverse reactions because 
95% of the reports come from the pharmaceutical industry who are mandated to report the drug side effects. Consumers are just not in the game. The pharmaceutical industry, they have tremendous control over the game of how we manage prescription drugs in our healthcare system. And it's an issue. So let me ask you something here. Just to, 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 to I, first of all, I, I, tons of respect for the work you're doing. Um, but what goes through my mind as a therapist and as a guy that deals with his own mental health issues, you know, going through this story, getting around talking to people like me and others, uh, you know, doing these tours, getting out, sharing the message, which is, you know, obviously turning a dark situation into some some sunshine for sure by saving lives and through education. Um, how do you, like, brother, how do, you, how do you tell the story over and over and over again without your own trauma? Like, you know, when I'm working with a patient that's, you know, got post-traumatic stress from a traumatic situation, you know, we deal with it, we, we manage it, we deal with it in whatever therapeutic method, man, manner and kind of bury it and move forward or burn it in a letter and move forward. Um, in your case, it's difficult to move forward because you're living that story uh, every time you, you, you kind of tell it in order to make the, the, the impact that it has to be, that the impact that you have to make clearly to, to get this message across to save some lives. Um, how do you manage yourself personally through it all? You know, you know that's a, an amazing question. And I guess for me, I'm doing this for my son and that purpose, which has been a huge part of my healing, yeah, yeah. overrides the trauma that I deal with. Because I do, no question about it, I deal with post-traumatic stress disorder. There's, there's no question. You have to, I have to. Oh, there's, there's no question. I, you know, I do relive it, and there's triggers. My son was a great little BMXer. In yeah. every community I've been in, I've seen kids on their BMXs on skate parks. And our backyard was a neighborhood playground. We had a half pipe in our backyard. Oh, you know, he was very talented. Our daughter rode her bike. I mean, it's, I mean, this situation to me is as unbelievable as, as to, to any of your listeners. Like, it is unbelievable yeah. right now. I came out of my psychosis after two weeks. And at that time, and, and I cried for three days on suicide watch in a jail in London, Ontario. And, and as I came out of my psychosis, I just couldn't believe not only we lost our son Ian, but I destroyed our whole family. And I feel very fortunate. My wife is on this tour with me and along oh, with our man. daughter's Good, dog. Great our daughter's dog. Great. She's, yeah. she's, our daughter is in, in Philadelphia working. Um, she's done very well considering the, you know, the adversity she's had to deal with. Um, she's got a good career and, you know, but she, we have her dog on our tour and we're making our way across. <laughs> her dog on your tour? Oh yeah. She's with us. So yeah, we, Oh, your dog uh, sitting. That's very cool. Listen, I, I got a minute left. Um, uh, I, you can tell me it's none of my business, but if, and that's okay. Um, are you getting therapy around the PTSD or are you just toughing this out? Well, you know what? I'll tell you, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, first of all, I got to mention this. Based on the work that you do, one of the biggest questions I'm getting is how do we get off these drugs? Yeah, exactly. If people get to know them, they want to know how to get off them, and the withdrawal side effects of many prescription drugs yeah. is very difficult. Yeah. You know, Especially ben- SSRIs, it takes time to come off of them big time. So yeah. you know the type of therapy I'm getting? I, you know, I do have access to a psychologist that I do talk with every so often, and it's, uh, it's more of a personal friend than a formal therapy, but uh, a lot of it has been peer support. You know, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. There are a lot of people throughout the world that have been in my situation. Sadly, you know, I was very fortunate, you know, in, in the sense that I was able to rebuild my life. I was found not criminally responsible. I was in a forensic psychiatric hospital and mental health center for four years and received an absolute discharge. There are people in very similar situations, in my case, in the U.S. They're in go to prison for life. Exactly. And they have. Yeah. 
So yeah, I feel I know, fortunate I, know I have the stories. opportunity yeah, to try to make a difference. So, And I really appreciate the opportunity to speak on your on your show tonight, Yona. Uh, the work well, you're doing my, is incredible. And, yeah. Thank you, brother. It's my pleasure. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. David Carmichael is the Executive Director of Canadians for Vanessa's Law. Uh, what's that, what's that uh, site they can go to, Dave? Yeah, know, knowyourdrugs.org, O-R-G. Knowyourdrugs.org. David uh, Carmichael, uh, just a, a guy fighting a really good fight. Just for the record, David, um, my number is available. You can check with our staff. Take down my, my personal cell number, and I'm free to chat with you whenever you feel like it. Let me know. I, I really appreciate that. Thank you very my much. My pleasure. I, you're, uh, you're one of the, you know, set from, from a very, you know, from a, a difficult situation, you're managing to put on the armor and get out there and fight a great fight. So, Big support on my side. Big kudos for you, brother. Um, okay, when we come back, we got more stuff to do. We're on the road to recovery here. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. And hey there, you're on the road to recovery. You know what? I say hey there because every time I say, and thank you for coming back, everybody goes, oh, God, it sounds so redundant. But really, truly, thank you for going, coming back and being a part of our show and being on this vo- this journey with us this evening on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud, your host, and uh, really happy to be in the studio with Sophia and Heather and the team. Um, yeah, love to hear from you, though. 416-870-6400. If you're outside the 416 area, 888-225-8255. We'd love to hear from you. Next couple of segments, please chime in. Um, so here's the story. It goes like this, right? Follow me. You, Bill goes out and buys a gun or finds a gun, maybe steals a gun, but somehow Bill gets a gun. Bill hands the gun to Tom. Tom hands the gun to Terry. Terry then takes that gun out, shoots someone, and kills them. Who's responsible for the homicide? 416-870-6400. It's a question. It's a bit of a contest. Who's responsible for that homicide? The original owner that then handed it off to a middleman who then handed it off to a perpetrator? Who's responsible, do you think? Well, it depends on how the courts view it, right? When it comes to a handgun, it's a little less likely that the person who is trafficking in the firearm is likely to be tied to, unless it's very obvious, to that crime itself, unless there's a series of, of weapons. They, tra- they, they track the numbers back if there's even a serial number left on the weapon, right? So that's the kind of the concept that we're talking about right now. So the reason I'm suggesting this, we're not talking about firearms as much as that is a huge killer in our society, Um, but we're talking about overdoses. Yeah, we're talking about fentanyl overdoses. And Ontario fentanyl cases um, are now becoming, uh, are now leading to more manslaughter charges for those that deal it. So uh, a survey of GTE police services and court documents reveals some of the new strategic ways police and prosecutors are trying to achieve tougher sentences now for the people selling the deadly drugs, right? Driving Ontario's opiate crisis both mixed re- with mixed results. Investigators uh, talk about the complexity of such cases makes it difficult to prosecute dealers for overdose deaths. Mean- meanwhile, legal experts and police agree that harsh penalties aren't the panacea for a public health crisis. But as the deaths mount, police services are wrestling with how exactly to confront Ontario's opioid dealers, trafficking charges, manslaughter, or nothing at all. I don't know how you feel about it. I'd love to hear from you, 416-870-6400. 
416-870-6400. Give us a call. Do you feel that the dealer is responsible for the death of one of the people, one of the one of the customers that that take their drugs? I, I, I got to think the answer is yes. You know, if I walk into a place and something happens to me in someone's place of business, and God forbid I die, my family is going to be looking at the owners of that business for some form of liability, guaranteed. Without question, someone's going to say, hey, you know, what happened to my dad or what happened to my husband? Let's see what Justin has to say. He wants to talk about psychosis and addiction. But, uh, yeah, okay, let's, 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 let's see where Justin's coming from. Justin, how are you, buddy? I'm good, thanks. Can you hear me? Yeah, loud and clear, bro. Listen, um, so I want to kind of point you in the right direction. The guy who sells the drugs to the person who dies should go to jail and for what? trafficking or manslaughter do you think well prescribes the drugs i think there is not no not prescribes the drugs they were talking about fentanyl here right so ends up mixing the drugs into whatever they're selling ends up selling the drugs to some guy that you know named billy billy takes the drugs Uh, and dies billy takes the drugs and dies well the manslaughter would have been the charge without cutting it i think really if you think about it but yeah. The uh the cutting the cutting of a an illicit drug makes it a lot worse I think, right? So it might I don't know, in my opinion there's a little bit of an intent to make a profit knowing you're you're putting in a worse you know a a, a product that has even worse uh you know physical well, No health, no you you know, you know damn well if you're a guy dealing drugs you sound you know yeah. I'm, I'm hoping you've got a little bit of a street background if your guy if your guy selling drugs and you're cutting it with something that you know is going to kill somebody you, you yeah. got to know straight up it's happening right like you just you know you got Well that's so, the thing it's a little wor- it's a little worse than manslaughter in my opinion right I I think uh, so too. I yeah. think so too because it's almost yeah. like, it's almost like dosing somebody in a bar, you know, putting something in their drink that leads them to a horrible situation. Anyway, that's not what you wanted to talk about. Psychosis and addiction. How can I help you, bro? Well, I'm going through a little situation myself with an alcohol uh, dependency, and um, the thing is, it's a little bit of an on and off situation, right? So, in certain circles, I'm I'm a I'm a good guy to be around, and I can handle it well, and people enjoy the, their time around me, but in other circles, I'm a I'm an alter ego, right? And uh, I'm 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 just trying to speak for people out there that want to try to get back to a normal state where they can get back to a normal way of handling alcohol, and um, you know try to figure out what the core problem is with the with the uh, the social environment or the dependency. For me, it's more of a yes. Yeah. Yeah. A yes, uh, a yes man situation. Yep. yep. And um, so, so, so here's what yeah. I would here's I mean, we don't have nearly enough time to even address this. But mm. what I'd like to mm. do, what I'd like you to do is, you know, when we when we finish this call here in a minute or so, um, Heather or, 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 or Sophia, whoever's taking the calls from you, uh, get get my number if you or if you're able to put it down, take it down. Uh, get yep. my number. Give me give me a call on Monday. And uh, let's chat about it, and let me see if I can point you in some direction and give you some tips and some strategies you can use pretty quickly. Uh, this is pretty common uh, in the work I do with people who are trying to get themselves on the right path but kind of messes with their social life, so I'm probably a 
maybe a good person to kind of give you some direction, and I'd love to do it. And uh, you don't have to worry. I'm not going to send you a bill. So give me a call after, uh, you know, beginning of the week. You know, Monday's probably a good time. And, uh, and we'll chat about it, see if I can uh, get you on the right path, because it sounds like you'd like, to, you'd like to be feeling a little better than you are right now, and I don't think it's going to be too difficult once we point you in the right direction. How's that sound? Wow, thank you very much. Yeah, it's that's uh, a uh, that would be great. Yep. Okay. Thank well, you. yeah. Perfect. My ple- my pleasure. So appreciate you calling. Appreciate you being a listener. Uh, pre- appreciate you, you you jumping in on the vote here. I'm hoping I was hoping somebody would be on my side about throwing all these guys in jail. Uh, but seriously, bro, don't forget. Give me a call, and uh, we'll get you on the right path for sure. Uh, you're on the road to recovery. So the conversation we're having here is about a homicide. Does selling drugs to someone who kills and ends up killing them, is it actually a homicide? I, I, like, I got to think so. As I was talking, we were talking to, to Justin here, um, who just called from Pickering. You know, Justin, you know, says, agrees with me. If, you know, if you're a drug dealer and you get, this is how it works, okay? If you're not in the drug business, I don't know how much time we have here, but if you're not in the drug business, here's how it works. You get a block of drugs. Let's call it cocaine, Okay. Um, and, or let's call it, uh, opioids, right? So you get, you get a, a powder version of opioids or something that you can, you know, you know, oxy of some sort. You want to put those into pills, but you can take the, 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 the supply of the original drug, the real drug, the, the actual full strength drug, uh, we'll call it, um, oxy, right? You take that oxy and you cut it now with something. You mix something into it. That's what it means to cut it. So now they're mixing fentanyl into it. And when you mix fentanyl into it and then press those into pills and give those pills to people who think they're taking legitimate oxy, that's how you end up killing them. That's how when people take fentanyl patches, that's a big thing too. People that are looking to get high because they have a, they have a drug dependency and, and, and an illness around that. Make sure you understand this is not just, yeah, there are people that just do it to get high. But if you get a pet fentanyl patch and you try to smoke it or use it in some way other than the way it's designed and you get, quote, unquote, the hot side of the patch, meaning where there's more fentanyl than maybe the other part of the patch, that's how you die. If you look to inject an opioid that you buy, heroin, if you can even find it anymore in Canada, if you look to inject yourself with heroin and you're used to injecting X amount of heroin because you know three, three, three lines on the syringe is what you do, but now it's mixed with fentanyl which makes it like supercharged a hundred times. So you do the same three lines because you think it's heroin. That's how you die. The people who are cutting it, manufacturing it, and distributing it know exactly what impact it's going to have on those that use it. Yes, they should go to jail. We need to get this stuff off the street. We need to under people to understand they're going to spend a lifetime or certainly 25 years or longer as they would if they shot somebody in the head if they manufacture, cut up this stuff, and sell it to others. Anyway, that's my thoughts for where we're at. We're coming back. We're going to talk a little bit about Father's Day. Yeah, baby, that's tomorrow. You're on the road to recovery. Yona Bud here, 640 Toronto. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. There needs to be a Father's Day song, like a birthday song, like Happy Birthday to Me, Happy Father's Day to Me. Like they, they, I definitely think there needs to be a song. Tomorrow's Father's Day. Wow, can you believe it? It's like unbelievable. I would say in my life, certainly since, um, you know, I can remember my dad has been there every day, um, every day, (laughs) regardless of what I've needed and um, can speak for my my brothers as well. You know, he was just always there, whether he was in town or out of town, he was just there when we needed him and did the right things and still does the right things. And 
I call him today and, you know, he's uh, well into his years and ask him how his day is going. He says, yeah, I'm fine. Okay, so tell me about you, right? So him and my mom, may she rest in peace, were in the same kind of people, right? They were the kind of parents that um, kind of put themselves aside for those that were close to them. You know, but Father's Day is not just about the guy who birthed you, right? Father's Day. And oh, by the way, I think there should be like a Parents' Day, right? It should be mom and dad together. It should be like a Parents' Day. Father's Day, Mother's Day, it kind of separates the two together. It's a Parents' Day. And then we should be talking about parenting together, and that should be a whole nother show. But today, fathers and mothers, but today being the Father's Day is tomorrow. Father's Day, there's stepdads, there's best friend dads, there's, you know, there's um, kind of uh, blood dads, you know, those that actually give you birth. There's granddads, all kinds of versions of the male figure that's in your life, if you're fortunate to have one, that there's a father figure, a parental figure in your life, male role figure in your life in this particular case, right, who in fact is there for you, the rock that you depend on, the person that you look for when times get tough, when someone that you need to go cry to. You know, my father may not have had the greatest advice all the time, but he had advice. He never turned me away. He never said, no, I'm not interested. And he never turned it around to make it about him. I was fortunate. I am fortunate to have an amazing father. Most of us have some male figure in our lives close enough to us that we can call them dad. You know, if it's someone that mom is seeing and has been seeing for some time or just someone that, you know, is in your life that's kind of like that dad figure, like that big brother dad figure, it's a whole other thing, big brother's that whole organization or people in your lives that's kind of step in to help. Male role figures, that role models that are there to help you and teach you the right things. But it comes with some responsibility. If you want to wear the tag, like if you want to wear the uniform that says dad, it comes with stuff, man. It comes with being there, like I said, with my dad. It comes with, you know, putting yourself out whenever it's required. It comes from positive role modeling, Right? My dad didn't do that so much, but I kind of learned how to read in between the lines. But positive role modeling, certainly in the later years, he's really taught me how to be a man. Um, but maybe in the beginning, of, you know, when I was younger, not so much. Different lifestyle, whatever, another story. But it comes with the responsibility. So if you're someone, if you have a male figure in your life that's owning up to that responsibility and doing their job and being a positive role model and being a rock in your life, then happy Father's Day. And make sure that you share that with them and let them know how important they are in your lives, right? Let them know by telling them, by hugging them, by holding them, by giving them a kiss if you're that kind of person. Writing them notes and letters saying how special they are to you. But not just tomorrow. Should be every day, right? Father's Day should be every day. Speaking of special days, it's my uh, my wife's birthday. And uh, just wanted to shout out to Pumpkin for her birthday. Not really her name, but she prefers not to hear her name on radio. And Paul McCartney turned 80 today. So uh, not only does he get a happy Father's Day, he gets a happy birthday to go along with that. And my wife has been sharing her birthday on Father's Day with her, for her dad and now with me for years, and she's okay with that too. So remember something. Father's Day is coming. Next week is coming. It's just another time that you need to look out there and say, hey, I want to spread nice. I want to love the ones I'm with. I want to hug the people that mean something to me and tell them how much I love them. And like my mom used to say, right, if you don't have something to say that's nice, don't say anything at all.
So we're going to see you next week. We've got more stuff to do. Please stay tuned to The Road to Recovery, 640 Toronto. I'm Yona Bud, your host, and we'll see you next week. Peace.